This is WCBN FM Ann Arbor, 88.3 megahertz. We are the voice of the underground intellectual resistance movement. Experimental, experiential radio broadcasting from the University of Michigan. We are student-run with lots and lots of community involvement. And I wouldn't have it any other way, would you? Well, good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley and Jim Dwyer should be here shortly. Um, It's a little after 6.30 p.m. and you are listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Well, uh, kind of an odd week, I think. <laughs> metadata in Washington, the debate about metadata and the Patriot Act uh, sort of got overshadowed by uh, floods in uh, Texas and Oklahoma, the continuing drought in California, and an incredible heat wave in India that's killed well over a 1,000 people uh, with no relief in sight. Obviously, the... Uh, Goings on in the Senate regarding the Patriot Act, which apparently is going to be passed later the week and will now henceforth be called the Freedom Act, is really sort of a strange uh, game of almost kabuki theater. Mitch McConnell, uh, the Senate Majority Leader, is known to be a supporter of Rand Paul, who over the last couple of weeks has sort of been given his 15 minutes of fame. Uh, complaining about uh, some of the troubling aspects of the so-called Patriot Act that uh, has now lapsed. And it's probably appropriate that it it has, because the Patriot Act, of course, was sort of ramrodded through Congress. Shortly after 9-11, there continue to be debates about whether uh, most congressmen even read the thing. It clearly was mainly crafted by the Bush administration with uh, John Yu and John Ashcroft playing big roles in the crafting of this uh, poorly conceived legislation. As usual, I think there's the uh, continuing confusion in America about the difference between privacy and secrecy. And uh, Rand Paul, of course, simply just took advantage of the strange rules of the United States Senate uh, to sort of force this thing to lapse, and it's appropriate that it probably did. So a lot of the sort of inside politics <laughs> about the rules game and what's really going on, uh, I don't think we need to worry too much about that. That's sort of inside baseball. And uh, let's just say that the hockey playoffs and basketball playoffs are coming up. <laughs> We'll worry about baseball in a couple of uh, a couple of uh, weeks, but uh, as noted in today's uh, New York Times by Charlie Savage, Savage uh, there is no threat to national security, so we can I think dismiss that uh, strange allegation. And of course, the public really needs to know more details about these various programs uh, that are actually still being can still be utilized by the FBI using the FISA courts. And uh, these FISA courts were created, interestingly, in the late 70s uh, following the uh, relatively 
revealing and uh, historical fact that uh, the FBI, the CIA, and various presidents had abused power systematically, repeatedly, historically. Shocking. Shocking. <laughs> There's gambling going on in this establishment. <laughs> Anyway, the FISA courts, as we uh, have uh, become uh, accustomed to, have pretty much been a rubber stamp for what the national security government wants to do. So when they say that the computers have been shut off <laughs> and they're not collecting the information, I don't think we need to be uh, believe them. And, of course, it's quite appropriate, as Charlie Savage points out in this article, that the FBI can simply go to the phone companies. As and, they've done in the past. In the internet companies uh, to get this information. All they need to quote, to paraphrase Rand Paul, is a warrant. Now, I don't think the American Revolution had much to do with the Patriot Act. He, 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 he tried to interject that into the debate. Uh, the American Revolution was really about the abuses of uh, King George. and Well, in the par Parliament... Taxes, right, and and the, the you know Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration of Independence, of course, uh, if you read the doggone thing, is uh, is really a document of the grievances that uh, primarily elites in America had against the Crown of Britain. Well, and and really uh, the Parliament, but it was not to their advantage long term to attack the British Parliament it was easier sort of uh, vilify King George beyond sure. the extent to which he had any control over Parliament at that time because they didn't want to downgrade the legislative body that's something that they aspired to so uh, the list of grievances against uh, the crown and King George he of course uh, represented the head of state of Great Britain are enumerated in the Declaration of Independence this is not to be confused with the Constitution. And uh, this, of course, is a Tea Party tactic, uh, all too common. Uh, we, we, you know, the Tea Party, of course, the Boston Tea Party was a part of the American Revolution. But America went through growing pains. It had the Articles of Confederation. And it realized at the end of the day that it actually needed uh, to form a three-branch tribunal republic. That's what the Constitution is. It's a conceptualization of uh, political science that was derived out of the Enlightenment mm -hmm. from basically French, British, Scottish, Dutch, German philosophers who, uh, and, and I'm, I'm primarily citing them because there's no question that the roots of the American Constitution came from classic political treaties that were being written as part of the Enlightenment, the scientific revolution and whatnot. And the Constitution, of course, is an imperfect document still, but it's better than everything else we've got, as they say. And we should be proud of the American Constitution. We should be proud of the American Revolution, but I don't think we should confuse uh, the war on terrorism with anything to do with the founding of our republic. And I just want to give a brain damage award out to the fact that the Patriot Act is not going to be called the Freedom Act. This mm. is nonsense and balderdash was already taken. <laughs> this is incredible. And what this really is about, of course, and this is no secret, uh, the National Security Agency...
uh, its acronym, NSA, long jokingly referred to no such agency, has been in this business for a long, long time. And uh, I don't believe that the computers have been turned off as of 5.44 a.m. or whatever nonsense that they've thrown out, the, uh, the, the alarmists have thrown out. Because as Savage notes in his news analysis in today's paper, um, after interviewing law enforcement and, quote, intelligence officials about what they are going to do in the interim, suggests that there are multiple workarounds to the gap. The gap between the fact that the Patriot Act has elapsed and the Freedom Act will be passed later in the week. Quote, uh, one of the expiring laws permitted wiretap orders of lone wolf terrorism suspects who are not part of any foreign policy group, a provision that has apparently never been used. The second permitted roving wiretap orders that follow a suspect as he or she changes phones, a provision that apparently has rarely been used. (laughs) The third permitted court orders requiring businesses to turn over records that are relevant to a national security investigation, the provision known as Section 215 of the Patriot Act. In addition to bulk phone records, program. The FBI used Section 215 about 160 times last year to obtain particular business records like suspects' internet activity. Section 215, according to the FISA court surveillance court, uh, has been legal uh, since 2006, since it came to light in 2013 via leaks by the intelligence contractor Edward Snowden. Two independent panels studied classified files and concluded that, quote, it had not been abused, but also that it had provided scant concrete benefits. There you have it. Well, one thing. A lot of sound and fear. Yeah, exactly. One thing it did provide is window dressing. And of course, that can be extended to the bizarre ritual that we've become accustomed to at airports where you take your shoes off because of the shoe bomber and you do this because of the underwear bomber and uh, recently as being reported this afternoon federal agents have gone through airport after airport in this great land of ours and found that the screenings for weapons questionable devices weird looking electronics uh is is not successful that these uh, undercover agents are able to get guns and all sorts of devices through. So the uh, noise over security is is just that. There's not really a concern here with anybody's safety and well-being. And, of course, it's interesting to note, by the way, just on the TSA, the, the people that are involved in airport security, uh, some of the heads of that agency have actually been held up by the Republicans in Congress because Obama's appointees have been in favor of unionization. Mm. So this gives you an idea of how... Uh, Ideology over security. Superficial a lot <laughs> right. of this stuff is. And when uh, Charlie Savage points, um, as he puts it, uh, this has never been used... <laughs> It's, it's almost laughable that these are the actual facts, but shouldn't surprise us. It would be much more useful if Congress would get on the ball 
and construct some real rules for the collection of metadata by corporations as well as the NSA. Mm -hmm. In other words, the corporate angle on all of this discussion is completely absent uh, from anybody's concerns. And that is one of the things that I continue to be troubled by. I don't care that the Patriot Act uh, has lapsed. I don't feel any less safe than I did yesterday at 9 p.m. when it was still in effect. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, some of this stuff is, is almost laughable. And, you know, it's interesting to read about some of the, the realities of this meta, metadata collection by the phone companies, the Internet companies, the NSA, etc., because uh, as Jerron Lanier pointed out in a relatively interesting article that appeared in the July 8th, 15th, 2013 of the uh, Nation magazine, shortly after the Snowden revelations came out, um, <clears throat> as he puts it, in commerce, where there is at least as much talent and money as in the intelligence game, Metadata's primary strength is not investigative. Silicon Valley, why is it obsessed with metadata, as he puts it? Because it turns out to be astoundingly efficient, a tool for social engineering, which means it has unbounded commercial values. Um, they keep records that <clears throat> when you are near the corner of, say, State and Liberty in Ann Arbor, that you may visit a coffee shop nearby. There are several. We don't need to name them. But that metadata uh, collection will indicate which one you went to. Well, and it becomes a commodity, yeah. ultimately, that people are willing to exchange big money for. You are the product. And you the, are the product, right. As they say. And this is what is really troubling to me about the, the recent development of the sort of unbounded technology. Obviously, it's a tool for good in many instances, but it's become a very strange thing where they know where you are, what you're doing, what your tendencies are. Uh, they can even flash advertisements on your cell phone. Specifically directed towards your inclinations and interests? Your social engineering tendencies. We do the engineering. You are the product. Which seems limiting in a way to, on the one hand, offer a device that opens the world to you, but it's also going to allow the corporate world to streamline and narrow cast uh, what they expect you to be interested in. Yeah. And, of course, I... Shutting down the world of wonder. I don't have the uh, London Review of Books article about the incredible quantity of data that's that's already necessary to be stored to keep track of all this, but nobody has the ability to, to, to sort all of this stuff out. It's almost as silly as these, uh, th this new uh, inclination now for police uh, officers to be wearing video cameras. To record absolutely every minute of every day. So what we are going to have are seeing-eyed dogs on <laughs> top of the, uh, the sergeant's badge or whatever, and in theory, most of it's going to be pretty routine. Well, I mean... <laughs> You can anticipate a sort of total recall world where teachers are, anybody who's like a public figure, public servant is required to wear a device that records every interaction that they undergo throughout the day. 
theoretically, these are things to be studied and stored, but you're right. Nobody could ever hope to keep up with the information that's compiled. And it's, it's bizarre. I mean, it'll tomorrow never comes. It's always yesterday. (laughs) We're, We're trying to figure out what you did yesterday so we can predict what you might do tomorrow. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it really is becoming uh, almost surreal as this debate continues. And needless to say, later in the week, I think we can uh, be relatively confident that the Senate will pass some version of the Freedom Act uh, with attached amendments. And uh, the bulk collection of phone data uh, <laughs> will continue. Uh, and, and by the way, the, a lot of this... Uh, these shenanigans involving the the Patriot Act were exposed well before Snowden and well mm-hmm. before WikiLeaks. Uh, PBS had a number of stories about, I think it was Room 213 in San Francisco. <laughs> Isn't it 237 at the Overlook? It's something like that. <laughs> it's one of those mysterious rooms where uh, AT&T allowed... Uh, <clears throat> intelligence agents of the American government into their files. We have the files, and they're going on your permanent record. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. Along with my Iowa test scores from 1968. And as for other other people's permanent records, let's let's give Lindsey Graham a brain damage award. He was uh, apparently... uh, very upset at Rand Paul's stand <laughs> and was rolling his eyes and announced today that he's running for president. His main platform, more troops in Iraq. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a winner to me. That's, that's a rallying point for the confused. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like uh, Custer's last stand. Hey, let's march up San Juan Hill one more time. So we'll give him a brain damage award. Uh, he is actually, in some levels, occasionally a likable fellow. He's a little more reasonable than some of the morons in the United States Senate these days. But uh, I don't know. But let's let's set aside the kabuki theater. And as for small needles and big haystacks, <laughs> which is what this is all about, uh, let's uh, keep those images uh, in mind because the needles are getting smaller and the haystacks are getting bigger. That's all I can say about that. <laughs> Searching for a needle in a haystack. Uh, gee, it's like looking for corruption in FIFA. No, wait, that's really easy to do. <laughs> yeah. And indeed, finally, there has been some scrutiny on behalf of the uh, United States Justice Department towards uh, what aspect of FIFA they can overlook. This is an organization that really is an international disgrace. Yeah. Uh, There's been a recent expose on the conditions for uh, workers uh, in Qatar uh, who are building the facilities that the next World Cup will be at, the horrible degradation of those conditions. Of course, why a country like Qatar uh, ends up with the World Cup is all about the big money. And of course, there's and certainly not about the football. Uh, no, you know, because why or would access you... to uh, like the the people who live in that region are either the super elite and they can travel the world to see soccer, or the uh, undocumented workers from 
third world countries who yeah. have no access. And of course, it's been revealed that uh, many of these workers turn out to be from Nepal. Uh, Qatar has not allowed them to return to their uh, earthquake uh, forsaken country at the moment that uh, obviously there have been thousands of deaths and uh, the infrastructure situation in Nepal is perilous to say the least. Uh, this is, you know, just one more example of the absurdity of Qatar having the World Cup, let alone the temperature. They have to rearrange the entire football, uh, and we're talking here about soccer, not to be confused with American football. They have to rearrange the whole thing for November because, well, it turns out that it's 120 degrees in Cotter in the summer. <laughs> so, Just a lot of silliness and wasted money. And actually, there's a funny article in the New York Times today about this Jack Warner former vice president of FIFA, who mistakenly held up an article from The Onion, falsely believing it was an article that redeemed his perspective. And then, of course, the clip of him, wave, this this article proves that there's hypocrisy in the American attitude. Unaware of what FIFA. The Onion was. Unaware that it's a satirical <laughs> newspaper and that he was being openly mocked. So that clip has since been removed from FIFA's website. Uh, most amusing, <clears throat> but uh, brain damage awards all around. And uh, fortunately, we have also to look forward to the reemergence of Rick Santorum as a presidential candidate. He is a sufficiently grim fellow that uh, he will be, I'm afraid, the source of amusement uh, <clears throat> and dismay more than a credible contender for the job. Uh, yeah, uh, yesterday's report in the New York Times was that the five leading contenders for the GOP nomination are all tied with really sort of non-exciting numbers. With none of the above. Uh, none of the above uh, sort of leading the pack. And uh, when you look at the lower five of the top ten contenders, it really is a shocking gaggle. I mean, we've seen some bizarre groupings of uh, political wannabes in the past, but when Ted Cruz is in the mix, it sort of brings the whole level down. Yeah, well, it, it's it's interesting that, of course, as I let off the program, I was speculating that there was actually collusion between McConnell and Rand Paul in this whole Oh, there likely is, Kabuki yeah, yeah. theater, because Rand Paul has been sagging in the Republican polls, and as for Rick Santorum, his his problem is Mike Huckabee. Well, Mike Huckabee, whether you like him or not, at least he's a, as I jokingly put it a couple of weeks ago, at least he's a cross between Gomer Pyle and Frosty the Snowman. He can make you laugh. There's something about him that is likable. He, Rick Santorum sounds like a, a reject from the Spanish Inquisition skit. Yeah. And he is a grim fellow, and uh, I'm sure he's w picked apart what he uh, is going to highlight, which is allegedly is going to be in, you know, income inequality. Uh, this is one of the That's a slippery slope for a Republican candidate. It's the most bizarre thing. Well, then uh, no more stalwart of moderation than Dick Cheney himself uh, pops up over the weekend and on the front pages of today's Wall Street Journal. Uh, politely denouncing my good friend Paul Rand as a uh, Rand, oh, Rand Paul, Rand Paul yeah. as a protectionist. 
He he doesn't like to admit it, but he is. I like him in every other respect, but but he's a filthy protectionist, and we should go bomb Iran right now. It's, of course, Dick Cheney's typical response to anything. Right, and you wonder who he would be supporting, but you would have to believe that it would be Lindsey Graham and not uh, another guy who threw his uh, punchki in the <laughs> into the ring, George Pataki, uh, former governor of New York State. Uh, he at least has been out of office so long that nobody can remember what he did <laughs> for New York State, but uh, he is socially moderate. Uh, but we've seen in recent elections in the Republican primary that you don't get very far uh, holding those positions. So uh, it is interesting. It's to, going to be interesting to yeah. see what happens with well, these top ten <laughs> debates, and also the uh, the sizes of the crowds that Bernie Sanders is drawing are uh, very interesting. Yeah, uh, not surprising though. Um, I think there's a, a lot of Americans who are very open to the ideas that he represents. The The center in this country was brought so far to the right in the Clinton years and throughout the last 50 years, generally speaking, that uh, there's a lot of people who are very interested and in not just in, you know, college towns like ours, in some of the possibilities uh, that are within reach of some of Bernie Sanders' ideas. Yeah, and Martin O'Malley threw his hat in the ring just to give him his uh, 10 seconds worth of recognition. Uh, my own analysis at this point, however, is there's not much difference between these three candidates on mm -hmm. most of these issues. Uh, you can certainly throw your... Uh, you can certainly criticize uh, Hillary Clinton for some of her past positions, but she is still a relatively liberal candidate as... as by mainstream standards. True. And I think, unfortunately, in the Democratic primaries, this will probably come down to very nuanced debates over policy. I mean, even even in the uh, Clinton-Obama-John Edwards troika that were in the race for a while. In fact, I've always believed that John Edwards stayed in just long enough to allow Obama to win. Hmm. If you go back and you actually check the facts... Uh, had he dropped out before Super Tuesday, Obama might not have won. But uh, Hillary Clinton is not, it, it's, you know, there's this bizarre thing where she's being accused of being a flaming feminist liberal by the conservatives and right wing by some liberal Democrats. I don't think it's really either one. I think that she is relatively moderate. Her problem within the Democratic constituency is that she obviously has heavy connections to Wall Street mm -hmm. and the Clinton Foundation and all of those marginal uh, issues. Some keystone money. Keystone money. But as we've seen from the last presidential election, uh, both Barack Obama and Mitt Romney had to spend over a billion dollars yeah. uh, to, uh, to run. And... Clinton and Obama's positions in the past have been, well, we, we want to change the system, but we're not going to change the system to tie our hands behind our backs. Uh, this, of course, is, is, uh, have been the blunders of the Supreme Court, who, uh, thank goodness, today ruled that a sock is not drug paraphernalia. <laughs> this was an eight-to-one ruling. Clarence Thomas dissented. <laughs> <laughs> confused about said sock. I can't wait for the onion to get a hold of 
a hold of this one. This, this is this is a kind of a complicated case involving uh, a deportation involving uh, some Adderall pills that were hidden in a sock <laughs> that the government tried to claim was drug par- paraphernalia. <laughs> Just remember, a, dr- a sock is not drug paraphernalia. <laughs> and if it is, how do you use it? Just tell that to Saki McCrackpipe over there. It's probably guys in Texas doing time for a sock encrusted with drugs. It's uh, There was drugs in it, but there aren't any more. It's just a sock, officer. They melted. Oh these were, these were sweat socks that I was wearing. So, yeah, you, 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 you got to read that one tomorrow. That was a rolling today by the Supreme Court. When I heard it, I uh, I had to laugh out loud, though I didn't send a text about it. <laughs> Which apparently there's also a Supreme Court uh, decision about uh, freedom of speech and using uh, the social media to say nasty things. <laughs> yeah, and or make threats. Right. Uh, that, that case is a little... That one's a little bit more bizarre, I think, and, and A little troubling, yeah. but... <laughs> We'll give the Supreme Court the benefit of the doubt on that one. That was another uh, ruling, by the way, that was relatively overwhelming. I think it was 7 to 2. Just wanted to quickly mention, by the way, that Cinetopia is coming up. Uh, this uh, is going to actually, uh, as far as the Detroit things uh, go, it's going to start later this week. Um, some very interesting things. But what I wanted to highly recommend uh, for Ann Arbor listeners in particular, they're doing a bunch of Orson Welles symposiums and uh, movies uh, next week, starting on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So I highly recommend, if you have any interest in Orson Welles' career because of the library, the Graduate Library's uh, collection of his letters and whatnot. Documents, official papers are housed here uh, at the U of M. Check it out, and there's going to be an outdoor showing of uh, Jaws, apparently on a wall over on Maynard. (laughs) So anyway... Um, you are listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Thanks to Andrew for engineering tonight. And we are out of time, so do stay tuned. Yazoo City Calling is coming up. Socks or no socks. Something like Sliding Delta. How did you get the idea for that? Where did you get that song? Well, uh, that song was actually, I heard that song was sung about 1907, the Sliding Delta. What is the Sliding Delta? That was an awful slow train down through Mississippi. They call it the Sliding Delta. Where did it, what towns did it pass nearby? Well, now I don't just exactly know. I couldn't just exactly say, but, uh, the older people partially know. I didn't know because I was a small kid. But I hear them singing about the sliding delta. What's sliding mean? What do they mean by saying sliding? Well, it, it means about the train is so slow until it almost slides like a turtle. <laughs> <laughs> J.D. Short in the background on storytelling and guitar telling you it's time for Yazoo City Calling here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. 
My name is Jerry Mack, your host this evening for an hour-long excursion into the land of Delta Blues in early urban blues, performed and lived by the men and women who started it all. This particular track found